You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. Hey, y'all. What's up? Hey. You guys ready to go? JT's looking at his iPad. I thought we were done. We're not done. We're recording an intro right now. Oh my gosh. Listen, Knowing Faith audience, I'm sorry. Jen and I are here for you. JT is locked in. Man, oh see now we can't use that. You How do you like them apples? <laughs> no, we, we we can still use that, right? Production says we can use it. Hey, on uh, today's episode, we well, asked the I question: What did Jesus Christ do? <laughs> Enjoy the discussion. <laughs> All right, we're here. I think we lost Jen. You think we lost Jen? Is she out? I'm here. Oh, okay. she's back. Sorry, we can see you over there. Hey, Jen. Nice. We're glad you're here. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I think JT was trolling you because you were on your phone. And JT is, is always. always on his phone. Yeah. yeah. But I was on my phone. It's true. It is. Why are you such a troll? I'm not a troll. You are. I bit. just wanted to make sure you were here. Hey, um, today we're going to keep on going with Apostles' Creed. Um, it's significant. <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> if you don't believe that we think it's significant so far... You've then, not been listening. You haven't or, been listening. Or, or we're really bad at what we do. Oh, yes. But just as a reminder, the Apostles' Creed is kind of a consensus document for the history of the church. It's a creed, and it's been one of the, it's certainly one of the ecumenical creeds, or is traditionally listed as an ecumenical creed, meaning that churches and Christian traditions from across denominational lines have historically affirmed the truths contained in the Apostles' Creed. Whether or not they affirm the Apostles' Creed entirely or not, the Apostles' Creed represents kind of the basic building blocks of Christian belief. It was used as a catechesis document for new disciples in the early church, and we're going not through... Not was, still uh, is. It still is, I mean, but... Like, in terms of the, the universal church, yes. this is the document. It is. Still. Um, and uh, and so was often used as baptism formula. And listen, it's got incredible significance in the history of the church, and it's still significant today, and that's why we're going through the Apostles' Creed. And so uh, last time we asked the question, who is Jesus Christ? And today we're focusing on what did Jesus Christ do? So JT, would you read the creed? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thanks, man. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to be focusing in on the kind of second part of the middle part, being what Jesus Christ did, or what did Jesus Christ do, that he suffered, he was crucified, and was buried, he descended to hell, or descended to the dead, as we might discover later, that he rose again, he ascended, and he's seated at the right hand of God, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. So we're going to focus on that today. So asking that question, what did Jesus Christ do? So we start with, he was born. Right? Right. Jesus Christ was born, mm-hmm. born of the Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. and we call that the incarnation. Right. We talked a lot about that last week, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. But then we get to this phrase, suffered. He suffered under Pont- Pontius Pilate. Can God suffer? I'm looking at JT right now because I can tell he doesn't want us to answer. He wants No, I really to want you to answer first. He's shaking. So you can say that we said it wrong. I just want to make sure you're right. <laughs> <laughs> You're the worst. <laughs> Just say 
Quiet. Kyle, well, Kyle and I disagree about this. You do? Well, Let's have a fight. Well, you talk about it. You start. Uh, I don't believe God can suffer. Yeah. Uh, the historic doctrine that, that kind of gets at this is that he is impassable or impassioned, that he doesn't experience an emotional life the same way that we do. Now, that doesn't mean that it, this clearly says that Jesus suffered. Yes. But the question is, is how do the two natures relate to the one person right. in anything? Dying, suffering, crying, joy, whatever, so whatever it might be. In the Apostles' Creed, if somebody asks you, did, uh, what does it mean to say that Jesus suffered? What would you say? Uh, I mean, it relates to him dying also, but I would say that the God man, Jesus, the one person, see the, let me even back up and say it this way. The grid that I think is really important is to say that natures don't act and natures aren't acted upon. People act and people are acted upon. And Jesus Christ is one person. Is one person. And so we say that Jesus suffered, Jesus died, Jesus was resurrected, Jesus ascended. But to so separate those natures is actually what I think can be pastorally unhelpful but it is important to say that God himself doesn't suffer yeah, because God can't suffer. That is definitely one way of looking at it. Tell me yours. Well, I, I'm not saying, and we've talked about this before, and you know I'm not settled on this, but I would say that the, the idea or the doctrine of impassibility that God cannot experience, or God doesn't, maybe not cannot, it's not the right word, but does not experience emotion or changes in an emotion or doesn't experience the emotional life, uh, doesn't experience an emotional life or cannot suffer, uh, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to arguments against impassibility because I feel like that the range of scripture, the story of scripture seems to communicate a, an emotional life and a capacity for grief that seems to be, I'm not willing to say is only anthropomorphic in nature, meaning that it's only us ascribing to God something to help make sense of something we can't understand. Why do you why do you struggle with impassibility? Because I don't know that again, I don't know that the witness of scripture is that God is impassable as much as impassibility seems to be like a logical outflow of immutability. A lot of times when people are talking about the fact that God can't suffer mm-hmm. or he can't experience emotion, they'll say, "Well, he can't because he would change and we know God's immutable." And so I understand impassibility seems to be a logical deduction from immutability. God can't change. If he could suffer, he would experience a change. But I don't know that immutability is primarily concerned with preserving God's unchanging whatever, but saying that there is an unchanging character or standard that is essential to him. And that I don't know that God experiencing emotional life, if God does experience emotions, it can't emote, so to speak, if he does have emotions and experiences an emotional life, or if he can suffer, then his emotional life and his suffering would be done in complete alignment with his character and would be perfect. So you're saying you think this argument flows out of immutability, but I would suspect that it flows more out of self-sufficiency. Interesting. Because emotions um, in human terms are a source of vulnerability. But are they? Are they? Yeah. All of, well, I guess that, yes, we are vulnerable when we express emotions, but we wouldn't say that that's a, we wouldn't say it's an imperfection, would we? I said it's a vulnerability. Right. So there's I mean, an article. We're designed to, yeah. Go there's, ahead. There's an article that, that I think I had you read yeah. that, that I just want to highlight here because I think it's a really good article because yeah. I think it actually helpfully talks about kind of both sides of this debate. Mm-hmm. It's written by uh, theologian Wesley Hill. It was published in First Things Magazine. If you just Google Wesley Hill First Things Impassibility, yeah. it'll come up. I'm not going to read the whole article. But he basically says it's important for us to defend the doctrine of impassibility precisely because we need to talk about the suffering that God does take on in the hypostatic union, in the incarnation. 
that if we have a God who suffers without the incarnation, we don't need an incarnation. Mm -hmm. Here's what he says at the very end of the article. He says, because it is God who suffers in Christ, that suffering is not simply the suffering of a fellow sufferer who understands, but is instead the suffering of one who is able to end all suffering by overcoming it in resurrection and ascension and immortality. So here's what he says, last sentence. Paradoxically, perhaps, it is only by affirming impassibility that we can maintain the deepest soteriological or salvation import of the suffering God takes on himself in and through the incarnation. Yeah. Agree or disagree? Well, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, this is something that I'm, I'm actively working out. Great. And that article mm-hmm. was pretty shaking for me. It was pretty helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say shaking, not like shaking. Shook. Like shook. It shook <laughs> like me. The young um, like say. the young kids say. Uh, it was helpful. And I think the reason shook. for this is that, uh, one, I don't, wanna, I don't want to trivialize what seems to be in Scripture there being a reflection of God's emotional life. I guess I feel like sometimes there's a rush to say, well, that's merely anthropomorphic language. It's accommodation language. And that's, that, that's okay. But you would say that it's true, right? I would say that it, it's very, it, it very well could be true. Do we think of, I'm curious, let's talk about anthropomorphisms though for a second, because would it be proper to say that anthropomorphic language is the shadow of a substance? Like in other words. For sure. So that's what, that's, I guess for me where I'm kind of like, I get bored with this conversation because. (laughs) Well, thank you. Well, sorry. (laughs) Because it's the two of you and you bore me to death. No, um, because. um, She told me to go to hell. (laughs) Yeah, you did. You did. (laughs) In the last episode. I don't think that, I think people don't want to embrace impassibility because they think they're giving something up. But what the anthropomorphic language is doing, I think, is pointing us to a deeper thing, yeah, not a something. lesser thing. Yeah. And so I understand the and the fear that can be, and I don't say fear in like a dismissive way no, at all, um, but the, the fear of, of loss associated with affirming the impassibility of God. But I don't know that it's a genuinely... Um, that it will be validated. Yeah, that it's a yeah. valid fear. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah, I think that's very reasonable. And without, aff- I don't want to overstate it, but without affirming anthropomorphic language and an analogical way of knowing God, we do run the risk of making God in our own image. Well, that was that was what I was yes. going to say. Is that it yes. comes back around to like our 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 immediate context? Like, what is the lean of the church yep. right now? It is toward over humanizing yeah. God. Yep. We want God to feel and be and do as we feel and are and do. And so I don't know that the lean has ever been heavily the other direction. It certainly hasn't been in my lifetime. But that is the the impulse that we're dealing with right now, which is why I think when we come to this doctrine, I want to fight for it a little harder mm-hmm. because um, – not because I want to depersonalize God, but oh, because sure. I want to re—I want to shift the the balance back to what yeah. I think is, might be a healthier place. I agree. Staying on suffering, but maybe shifting the conversation a bit. One of the biggest criticisms historically, or at least in contemporary biblical studies, that's given of the Apostles' Creed is that it doesn't talk about the life mm-hmm. of Jesus; that it talks about his birth and his death, his crucifixion, burial, yeah. and resurrection mm-hmm. and ascension. And I understand that criticism, but I'm also frustrated a little bit by it. Because I don't think it's entirely true. Mm. I think the apostles in using this category of suffering aren't only referring 
Yes. yes. This to is his a really death. important point. Yeah. They're, ref- they're referring to the entirety of his human experience yes. and human life. Well, and I think that's what the author of Hebrews keeps saying over and over again yeah. is that Christ is made perfect through suffering. Yes. That's right. And he doesn't mean just the crucifixion. Yeah, this is his passive, obe- yes. his passive yes. and active obedience Agreed. of yes. his father. Agreed. Yes. And so I think they need to do a little reread of the creed. I agree with that 100%. Creed reread. Creed reread. Creed reread. <laughs> Crickleback. Maybe Crickleback will have a song <laughs> called Creed Reread. Read. Um, uh, I also love here that we have moving forward that, that we have the significance of a historical marker like Pontius Pilate. So you're like here in the Creed for the like the history of the church, like Pontius Pilate is getting recited every week across the global and mm-hmm. universal church. Like wouldn't want to be that guy. Right. But like I love it because it press. does. You it, don't overcome this does, one. It doesn't allow the this creed, the Apostles' Creed in particular, doesn't allow us to uh, remove Jesus Christ from the historical situation. That's right. It doesn't allow us to... That's kind of what we're talking about with Mary. Yes, it conceptualize mm-hmm. him or make him an abstraction. He's not like, an idea. No, he really stood before Pontius Pilate. Yes. And they had this conversation. Um, and so suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. What is the crucifixion or what is the significance of the crucifixion for our understanding of Jesus Christ? I mean, just real short, because like we could do... A whole season. And we should. We should come back to this on atonement. But but what is just real briefly, why the crucifixion? There is not an instrument in human history that is more godless. That's one of the ways that Fleming Rutledge talks about it in her Mm. book, The Crucifixion. This is the primary instrument to inflict the most amount of pain and the most shame possible upon the person that is on. Even even the electric chair, which sometimes people will talk about there being kind of a a contemporary version of the crucifixion would be the electric chair. I would argue the electric chair still doesn't get close to what a crucifixion is in terms of the duration that the victim is on, in terms of the public humiliation that the victim is undergoing. Like the cross is the symbol of complete and utter shame, complete and utter suffering. You look at me super skeptical. Yeah, I am a little skeptical. Tell me why. I think there are plenty of terrible ways to die. Oh, I think every way to die is a terrible way to die. And so I don't know that... um, the point of crucifixion, I think, I sometimes think that we err on the side of the physical suffering element because that's what we think should be the most moving part of his suffering. I'm not trying like to do the gory, like the, you know, the I'm not trying to do that. And the blood and the gore and the, all of that. No, and, I, I think and, that's and true. To, to elevate death by crucifixion above other forms of capital punishment. I just don't know what we win. I think you win a... I'm not, this is not, I'm not trying to juke. I'm saying I think that the Bible says that this death specifically is a curse. Well, I do. I mean, I get the biblical theology significance of it and uh, I just... I, I, I think that um, the point of the crucifixion, or, or I would say one of the biggest points of the crucifixion was that it was public and it was associated with all of those Old Testament associations. We need to read Fleming Rutledge, The Godlessness of the Cross. No, I'm willing to be I'm willing to be convinced differently. I'm saying my initial response I do, is and I, do hear I what think you're saying. Uh, push back against like um like all of the movies that are made that portray the blood and the gore as though that's the compelling piece of the I of think a, that is death. A yeah. facet of the diamond. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I also understand what you're saying. Yeah. Like sometimes we can when this is preached it can be like so mm-hmm. over torqued. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it can be un- super... Like, if you just understood how gory it was, you yeah. would that's feel as bad as you're supposed to, to feel. No, I know you're not. I'm saying that's where I think it can go. It can, and it has. Um, so, crucifixion, he's di- he, he died, he was buried, and then it has this really interesting phrase. 
some of the creeds say, descend, uh, some of the versions of the Apostles' Creed will say, descended to death. Mm-hmm. We're not going to talk about died at all. Well, I had a, I had a joke from the Princess Bride. Uh, you had a joke about the death of Jesus from the Princess Bride? Well, about being not fully dead. Uh, yeah. Okay. Remember that line? Yeah. He's mostly dead. He's mostly dead. I was thinking of Monty Python. <laughs> oh, yeah. Bring out your dead. Yeah, bring out your dead. So when we're talking about the death of Jesus, let's just at, uh, state it plainly. Was Jesus mostly dead? He's fully dead. Fully dead. And and that's just something to like consider for a second. Like If you have ever been around death, like it's, it's, it's just a hard thing to like see somebody's, like to see the color leave their body, to see that their air, the air is no longer going in and out of their mouth into their lungs, their heart is no longer beating. This isn't uh, something to be resuscitated from. This is something where where death, like the, the, the soul has left his body. Yeah, he's dead. He's dead. And the creed said, goes on to say, buried mm-hmm. and then descended to hell or descended to death. And so we're we don't cu- believe that, do we? Well, we're going <laughs> to cut away for a moment. We're going to hear from a friend of the show, Dr. Matt Emerson. One of the things, so Matt's been really helpful to me in a number of ways. Number one, he's a great theologian. He's humble scholar. Uh, I'm also a part of an organization that he runs. He's the executive director of the Center for Baptist Renewal. And so if you're interested, check out that website. Matt and his team do a great job. That's great. Let's hear from Matt. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. Today on the line, we have Dr. Matt Emerson. Hey, Matt, how are you? I'm great, Kyle. How are you? Great. And, uh, man, we're just so excited to have you on the call today. So uh, Dr. Emerson is a professor at Oklahoma Baptist University. He's the Dickinson Associate Professor of Religion there. He's got five daughters. Five. Five daughters. I just have one daughter, Matt. And, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, and she brings an explosive personality. I can't imagine. Five daughters. That's right. Five of them, Five whole of them. handful. Mar- married to Alicia. How long have you been married, Matt? We've been married since 2006. That's awesome. So going on 14. Incredible. 
Um, and you've got a forthcoming book. Um, it's coming out on Christmas Eve. You said it was a good last-minute stocking stuffer. Uh, and uh, the book's title is He Descended to the Dead. It's from InterVarsity Press Academic, IVP Academic, He Descended to the Dead. And so we wanted to have Dr. Emerson on because uh, he has written a book on what is a very controversial line in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus descended to hell. Some say descended to death. Others say, and so we wanted to have him on and just ask, hey, what is your take? After studying and researching this topic, writing a book on the topic, what are we to take that phrase to mean in the Apostles' Creed? Do you, I, I'm assuming based off the title of your book, you, you prefer descended to death. Right, so I would prefer to say he descended to the dead just because hell today confuses people and makes them think of torment, and that's really not what the phrase ever meant. It never meant in the early church, the medieval period, that he went and suffered in hell. So I prefer to say to the dead because I think that communicates a little bit better what, what the phrase is getting at. So he descended to the dead. So if that's the preferred phraseology because of some cultural baggage around the word hell that was would not have been true around the time of the writing of the creed and in the life of the New, uh, New Testament church, what does that phrase mean? What does it mean that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, descended to the dead? Why did he do that? How? What are the actual, like, what's the, the mechanics of such a thing? Sure. Yeah, it's pretty, I mean, I think it's pretty simple. Um, the, the phrase, he descended to the dead, just means that Jesus experienced death like every human does. His body uh, was buried, and his soul departed to the place of the dead. Now, because he was righteous, he went to the place of the righteous dead, he didn't suffer there, but because he's not only human, but also God, he entered into death victoriously. He proclaimed to everyone in the underworld that he was victorious in his death, and he's going to be victorious in his impending resurrection. Um, and that, so it's, it's a victory speech, basically. He goes down to the place of the dead and says, what's up, everybody? I win. And then the resurrection proves it. Okay. All right. So you said there's a lot of things you said there that I want to come back on. But one of them you said, yeah. you talked about, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm imagining for a listener when you just said, well, you know, he went to the dead, but because he was righteous, he went to the place of the righteous dead. I think mm -hmm. probably a few listeners are going. You're connecting a lot of different passages. Yeah. What, what place are you of the righteous dead? Are you talking? Sure. How many dead places are there? <laughs> uh, and I'm thinking of the good place here is honestly, have you ever watched the show? The good place. Oh, yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. uh, so what what is the place of the righteous dead, and are there other places he could have gone? Right. Well, whatever place it is, it's not that place in the middle where that lady who's stuck in the 80 lives in the good place. <laughs> um, but it, nice reference. Yeah. In the uh, in, in the Bible, the the Bible refers to basically three compartments of the dead. So you think about the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Um, Luke says that, or Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke that. Um, Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom while the rich man departs to what we, what we call hell. Um, there in that passage, he calls it Hades. So those two, those are the two main compartments. Uh, you have the righteous compartment of the dead where basically people who die in faith uh, go, and we might call that heaven. Uh, and the Bible refers to that as either paradise or Abraham's bosom. And then the other place uh, that the rich man goes, sometimes it's called Gehenna, sometimes it's called Hades, sometimes it's called Sheol, but it's the place where the unrighteous dead. And then the, the, the people who die without faith in the Messiah. 
And then the third compartment um, is mentioned, like, for instance, in 1 Peter 3, in 2 Peter 2, uh, in Jude, the spirit that holds, uh, sorry, the prison that holds evil spirits or, or evil angels. Um, and so those are the three basic compartments. And so, you know, all I'm saying there when I say that Jesus goes to the place of the righteous dead when he dies is that he dies as a righteous man. He doesn't die and suffer torment in, in hell, what we would call hell when he's dead. Um, he goes to the righteous compartment. He says to the thief on the cross, for instance, today you'll be with me in paradise. So, so that's what I mean by compartment. So would you say that, would it be as accurate to say that he descended by saying descended to the dead? It sounds like you could be saying, well, the righteous dead, the place of the righteous dead would be akin to Abraham's bosom or heaven. But are they those things? Are we talking about three phrases for the same place or? Right. Yeah. So this is, this is where this gets difficult is that um, we're using we're using terms and phrases that refer to that refer for us to spaces uh, to talk about spiritual realities, right? So your your soul, it's not going to a place, right? There's not a there's not a cave that goes down into the underworld, basically. Um, so there's not you know if you drilled a hole in the earth, you wouldn't find. Shale. Have you watched Stranger um, Things? Because I think you might be wrong. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yes. If you find the upside down, run away. Um, I think the point that we've already gotten to is that I watch too much TV. Anyway, so, oh, you can't out TV Kyle no, Morley. No, 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 no. We, yeah. we, we, we can go all day on this. But 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 you're right in saying uh, there's not a place that you're drilled down. So we're, we're using right. spatial language to talk about spiritual realities. That's what you're right. right. That's right. And so, so the Bible talks about the place of the dead as this general underworld, kind of the third tier of the universe. If you think about it again, using spatial terms, uh, there's heaven, the first tier, and then there's the earth, the second tier, and then there's the underworld, the, the place of the dead, the third tier. And so in the Old Testament, in the Jewish writings between the Old and New Testament, in the New Testament, um, the writers conceive of that third tier, the place of the dead, as having different compartments. Okay. So when when... Jesus goes to the place of the dead, he's going to the place where all the dead are. But nevertheless, he's not tormented there. So he doesn't actually, he doesn't descend into torment. He descends to the place where the blessed dead, the, the, the dead that die in faith are. And again, you know, as I'm saying that, it's like, it's not like there's walls in between each right. of these compartments yes. or whatever. It's not a physical place. It's a place where souls live and souls are not physical. Um, but we have to use that kind of terminology for our brains to make it work. Um, right. And so it's, it's using these physical, spatial terms to describe invisible realities. Well, I'm fascinated by all of this. Like, I really am. This is an area where I feel, like, significantly underdeveloped theologically and having considered. So let me kind of ask a question in closing, and then let me tell you I'm 100% going to buy your book because everything you've just told me is something I'm interested in. Well, don't ask a question in closing yet. I haven't gotten to ask any questions. Well, I'm sorry. Well, then I won't ask the question. You're just dominating the conversation. Well, I'm interested in the time. I'm an avid learner, JT. (laughs) Golly. Um, All right, you ask your question. I'll save mine. This might be your question. Well, we're great minds. Um, okay. Go, please. Uh, okay. <laughs> please go. I mean, I think, Matt, I think my question for you is so many evangelicals either don't have a place for this in their understanding of the gospel or would just want to flat out deny and reject it because of what they think they they would be affirming. And yes. that's kind of what you're getting at here. But but like either it's either it's neglected because we're apathetic towards it or it is like denied because like 
Jesus went to paradise, right? He said right. to the obedient in paradise. So tell us, what do we lose? Like, what is compromised theologically and in our understanding of what Christ accomplishes for us if we yeah. are either apathetic towards this or deny it? This was my question. Yeah, well, there's a few things. Um, and this is this is one of the two main, or well, three main uh, motivations for the book. I, I want to recover the phrase for evangelicalism, so I've spent a lot of time on the biblical and historical arguments. But then the second purpose of the book is to show how it impacts every area of Christian theology. Um, and the third one I'll just mention briefly is to show how it's pastoral, the pastoral doctrine. Mm. It's really important pastorally. So back to that second one, uh, you know, one of the things that we lose is the fullness of Christ's kingship. The descent is saying that Jesus is king over every realm of reality, including the realm where his enemy is supposed to be the king, the realm of the dead. That's good. Yeah. And Jesus yeah. goes in and breaks down the doors, busts down the gates, and says, hey, strong man, you're bound. Hmm. Uh, and so it's, it's an affirmation that at the name of Jesus, every knee on earth and in heaven and under the earth bows. Jesus is the king of the underworld. So we lose uh, the fullness of Christ's kingship over every realm of reality. Uh, historically speaking, it, it seems like uh, the dissent doctrine was really emphasized when the church was battling a heresy called Apollinarianism, which says that the, the son only takes on a human body and not a human body and a human soul. Well, what better doctrine is there to combat that idea than that Jesus has a human soul that descends to the place of the dead? That was yeah, the key. That was really a key doctrine in, in combating Apollinarianism. So I think we lose that. Um, and then I think that the, the, the third thing I would say, last one, is that the descent helps us understand. It's one. It's one example to help us understand how the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of Christology um, go together. And so, you know, we're talking about a situation and Jesus experiences something that's fully human, death. Well, how does he experience that? He experiences that as the one person, hypostatically united between divine nature and uh, human nature. Um, and so we say that he descends as a human, but because of the hypostatic union, we say God descends to the place of the dead in the person of Jesus. So those are at least three things off the top of my head that I would just say, um, this is why the descent... Tell me, uh, tell me, tell us pastorally why this matters. Yeah, so, I mean, in, when I was writing this book, uh, I had a number of, of loved ones die. I had a, a friend, a really close friend who lost his dad. Uh, you know, death is everywhere. You know, I'm sure we can all think of instances recently where we've either been in the face of death ourselves or somebody else has been. Death is the enemy, uh, and the descent pastorally says to us, listen, Jesus has gone before you into the valley of the shadow of death. Mm -hmm. He's walked in the place of darkness that you're about to enter if you're facing death, or he's, he's walked through the place of darkness that your loved one is about to enter or has entered. We're saying to them, yes, there's hope in the resurrection. Absolutely. That's the final, ultimate hope, that because Jesus is raised from the dead— we too will be raised from the dead. But there's there's pastoral hope in the meantime as well. 
that Jesus has gone through the valley of the shadow of death, and now those who die are with him in death. He's present with the dead. Uh, and, and so, I mean, that's something pastoral that you say to people, not just like, hey, wait this really long time, which none of us know about. I mean, that's that's a great hope, that we're hoping for the resurrection. That's ultimate hope. But even right now, as you're thinking about the fact that your loved one is gone, or you yourself are about to be gone, Jesus has gone before you, and Jesus is with you. And that's an incredibly pastoral doctrine to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. It's good. Matt, thank you so much for jumping on. This was truly helpful, and I felt like you just got me interested in something that prior to this I had just a passing interest and a very low-level awareness of. I'm really grateful for that, and I look forward to your book, He Descended to the Dead, Out Christmas Eve, IVP Academic. Dr. Emerson, thank you for jumping on. Great to chat with you, Matt. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. All right. Well, that was really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but we, we came across a lot of recommendations for having Matt on from Twitter. Yeah. So for those of you who would ask, can any good come from Twitter? <laughs> it can, it can Apparently, happen. Apparently, every now and then. It Gospel can, bombs. It yeah. can happen. I think, man, a, a lot of what he just said, like I said to him, I feel really underdeveloped in that area. Yeah, me too. And so I'm really interested in picking up his book. It was, I, that was a fascinating discussion. I really agree. And I like the, I like why descended to the dead as opposed to descended to hell. Yeah, that's the way I've, I've, descri- I've gotten that far before, yeah. but he made some of those connections of like, every knee will bow in heaven yeah. and on that earth. And under, I had yeah. not thought about that. I yeah. agree. So, but he doesn't stay dead. He rises from the dead uh, and he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And we've done episodes on resurrection and ascension that you can check out. But the creed doesn't just end with, we've talked about the narrative arc of the Apostles' Creed that, you know, we, we are not just getting um, just a moment, but we're getting kind of the whole story really condensed. So he was died, buried, he descended to the dead, he rose again from the dead. And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And we've talked, you know, JT has called the ascension the forgotten act of Jesus. But that he leads with him this triumphant set of freed captives, right? Mm-hmm. That he goes out in this triumphant victory procession announcing to the world, right, that death has been conquered. That's right. In the resurrection and ascension. And so we're going to have to cut it short for today there. But we'll come back and we'll talk more about the, uh, the resurrection, ascension, and the judgment that eventually Jesus comes back to the earth. So Good we'll start stuff. positive and on some of the heavier stuff. <laughs> for more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, we're going to jump back into Acts and take a look at a martyr, a magician, and a missionary in Acts 6 through 8. That'll be interesting. See you next time. Grace and peace.